Welcome back to Basecamp and to our study in systematic theology, where we've been walking through the Bible to understand systematically some pretty foundational things that we believe as Christians. Most recently in this study, we've been talking about the person of Jesus, and we've been answering the question, who is he? So specifically, we've had two episodes so far in this, one on how Jesus is fully God, and then uh, how he, the second person of the Trinity, laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time, right, as the as the God-man. So, so we, we spent some time chatting about the full deity of Jesus and the full humanity of of Jesus in our in our second uh, episode on this, how he is 100% God and 100% man. And so now we turn our conversation from understanding the person of Christ to the work of Christ, specifically considering what Jesus accomplished in his incarnation, his perfect life, in his substitutionary death. So, With no further ado, let's get into it. So, what did Jesus come to do? We we might ask that question to various people on social media question boxes or the streets of our city, and we, we might get a lot of different answers. But, but many of them will fall short of what the Bible actually explains that Jesus came to do, or, or it will distort it in various ways. Right? We, we might hear that Jesus came to be an example of how to please God, or that he came as a social revolutionary, speaking truth to power. Or we might hear of how Jesus was a wise man who taught many good things. Right? I mean, the list could go on and on. And it's, it's just as crucial for us to understand the full deity and full humanity of Christ as it is to understand what Jesus came to do. Because we can know who he is. But if we don't understand what he came to do and why that's important, we would misunderstand the gospel altogether. Or worse, come to believe another gospel. Right? One that is void of salvation. And, and we will remain dead in our sins, under the wrath of God, and without hope. It's that important, right? Like, if we misunderstand what Jesus came to do, we risk missing out on the salvation that he accomplished, and we risk misleading others about the most important news in history. Right? Not only that, but it's also important to study because Jesus is worthy of worship and honor for what he's done. We want to thank him and worship him for what he has Done, and so we want to get that right and render unto him the worship that is due to his name for what he has accomplished. We don't want to thank him for doing things he didn't do. Like that's like I didn't do that, right? Why would I? Why would you be thanking me for something I didn't even do, right? Like, so we want to we want to worship him and give him honor and render unto him that which is due to him. And I, I don't know about you, but nothing nothing in my life really fires the affections of my heart like remembering the work of Jesus, like remembering the gospel, remembering the the price that he paid for my salvation as he lived the life I ought to have lived and then faced the eternal judgment of God the Father in my place. See, that's why we explain that, that all theology is deeply practical. It's deeply practical. And the work of Jesus is especially so. So with that in mind, let's begin to consider together the work of Christ, the work of Jesus. 
Now, one handy way to summarize Christ's work in the Gospels is through the three offices that he fulfills, which is something we mentioned really briefly in our sermon last Sunday. Those offices are prophet, priest, and king. And yes, I know exactly what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, these offices are probably types that are fulfilled in and through Christ Jesus. And I would say, yes, you're right. So <laughs> let's, let's examine these typological offices really briefly. So first, Jesus fulfills the office of prophet. Now, as we know from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19, Moses foretold that God would raise up another prophet like him from among the Israelites. And now immediately there's a fulfillment of this prophecy in Joshua, but ultimately we see the greater fulfillment of this office through Jesus, right? As he steps into time as the word of God, the ultimate revelation of God, God in the flesh with us. And as he speaks God's words, so he is the the best prophet, the perfect prophet. And it's his words, as he explains in Matthew 5, that are on equal footing with other scripture. Thus, when Jesus speaks, we have the very words of God speaking. Thus, he is fulfilling his role as prophet. And in the Bible, it points us to see this as well, as we open up as well to the book of Hebrews, where we see this writer exegeting the Bible for us, explaining the Bible for us. And, and what we see in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, we see that Jesus comes as the true and better Moses, fulfilling all of that from Deuteronomy, this, of this coming prophet that would come. Not only that, but as Hebrews Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 explains, it says, Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. So, so God has spoken to us, and he's done so by the true and better Moses, the true and better prophet. Secondly, Jesus fulfills the office of priest. Now, if we remember from the Old Testament, the priests were those Levites from the lineage of Aaron who taught God's people the laws of God and also who mediated between God and man through sacrifices that God had ordained, right? So again, in Hebrews 4 explains for us that Jesus fulfills the role of the true and better priest as he is the one who mediates a new covenant and who only did one sacrifice, laying down his own life as this substitutionary sacrifice, this lamb of God, and then that no other sacrifices, no subsequent sacrifices are necessary. Thus, Jesus is our true and better high priest. Again, Hebrews 4 is helpful in understanding this, right? As Jesus mediates a new covenant between God and his people. Thus, we are reconciled to God through the priestly work of Jesus, who is both priest and lamb, who lays down his own life as our Passover lamb, so that the wrath of God the Father would pass over us. And again, Hebrews 7.26 says, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So, so Jesus, therefore, is our better prophet and our better priest. And thirdly, Jesus fulfills the office of king. Now, remember, Scripture constantly reminds us that Jesus comes from the lineage of David. He's from the tribe of Judah. And in doing so, we are reminded that he is the son of David, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we see this especially in the pronouncements of his oncoming birth in the Gospels, don't we? I mean, he's the one who's been given the throne of David. And we see this throughout the New Testament as Jesus, the true and better king, has been given the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He, he is that perfect king of Psalm chapter 2, the great king of the universe who rules with the rod of justice and of peace. 
before whom all will prostrate themselves and subjugate themselves to his righteous rule. And not only that, but he is the king who was promised in Isaiah chapter 11, whose kingdom would match the kingship of the end of the book of Isaiah. And and throughout the entire narrative of scripture, we have this arc of desire for the king to come and usher in his kingdom here upon the earth. And that's exactly what Jesus did in his first coming when he inaugurated his kingdom. And now presently he is rescuing and redeeming his people from slavery by the work of God the Spirit. And he will come again, and as he does so, he will usher in his kingdom here upon the earth. So as Revelation 19:11 and 16 explains, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is Jesus, of course. We should praise Jesus because he's our true and better prophet and priest and king, fulfilling all of these types uh, of, of this true leader who comes to lead and fight for and govern over and mediate for and speak the words of God to us and to flesh those out into our everyday lives. Not only that, but in thinking about the work of Jesus, let's also now consider three aspects of his work. We mentioned these a minute ago. First, his incarnation. Then we'll look at his perfect life. And then we'll look at his substitutionary death. And so firstly, in thinking about the incarnation of Christ, this is, uh, if you've ever been to a Mexican food restaurant, uh, I know those aren't that common, but you get like chili con carne. That's chili with meat. Uh, That's what this word incarnation means. It's Jesus, God the Son, taking on flesh. He's God enfleshed with us. So this is, as as we've already talked about this, but, but Jesus in laying humanity alongside of his divinity and stepping into time. So in thinking about the incarnation, therefore, of Jesus, I want us to think especially about the humility in this condescension, in this coming down where he, the eternal God, the Son, the agent of creation, the one by whom the world was created, he stepped into human existence. And as he did so, he did not avail himself of most of his divine attributes, but chose to live as we do. He could have tapped into, he does from time to time, tap into his divine knowledge or power or various things, but most of the time he chooses not to do so but rather chose to live as we do, thereby fulfilling all righteousness in our place as he was empowered by God the Spirit and obeyed God the Father as he lived to glorify the Father. And and throughout his life, throughout the humility of this great work, we, therefore, ought to praise and adore him because it's a profound mystery. I mean, the more I think about it, the more fascinating and mysterious it is, right? That Jesus stepped into time, born as a baby, Right to be our new Adam, obeying where Adam failed to obey and fulfilling all righteousness. And the incarnation, therefore, ought to, ought to elicit wonder and praise from us. And the intention of the incarnation, which Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 17 explains, it says this, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, And deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people." 
So firstly, the work of the Incarnation is profound and beautiful. We, we've talked about that in our other episodes, so I'm going to talk about that much more. But, but then secondly, that Jesus lived a perfect life in our place is just as mysterious and wonderful as the Incarnation. I mean, think about that. Throughout his earthly life, Jesus lived a sinless life. Completely sinless. I mean, he didn't just simply put on flesh and step into time as a fully grown man and then die on the cross later that day, right? He didn't beam down and here I am, die, and then gone. No, he lived decades of life, sinless life, humbly depending upon the Spirit and obeying the Father. And Christians throughout the ages have referred to this work as the active obedience of Christ. Right, so not only do we have the incarnation, which is a wondrous work, but we have the work of the continual active obedience of Christ so that he never sinned in word, thought, or deed, completely sinless in all ways. See, the first Adam, he disobeyed. In Israel, as God's chosen people, they broke God's laws. But Jesus came to fulfill the law. Thus, he is the new Adam, the new Israel, the better son of God. And even when he was led into the wilderness to a barren land with no food or water, Jesus trusted and fasted and relied upon God the Father, who had led him into the wilderness by God the Spirit. He didn't grumble or accuse God of sin. Thus, Jesus is the opposite of what we learned about in Exodus chapter 17 a few weeks ago, right? Thus, we ought to praise Jesus for his faithfulness at all times. And we ought to trust that the fruit of his active obedience, his perfect righteousness, is ours by faith. It is given to us. It is imputed to us by faith. So that through faith in Jesus, God the Father looks upon us just as if we had never sinned and just as if we had always obeyed. Not because we have, but because Jesus has done these things in our place. It's his righteousness that is applied into our lives. And this is a crucial point because we have followed in Israel's disobedient footsteps, right? We deserve to have our names blotted out like the Amalekites we learned about last week and to suffer under the eternal wrath of God for our rebellion against him. And this is why we need Jesus, right? He is the one who, according to Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, came to fulfill all righteousness, And he did, because we never could. Thus, today, by faith, we approach the throne of grace with confidence, not because of our great works, but because of the works of Jesus. And we ought to praise Jesus rightly for what he has accomplished in his perfect obedience in our place. Not only that, but Christ's act of obedience should console us as Christians. Sister, Jesus has felt the pull of temptation and the allure of sin. Brother, he doesn't reprimand us when we're tempted, like the coach who barks at his team, right? You need to toughen up. You need to do better. (laughs) No, no, he tenderly, gently comforts us, brothers and sisters, and invites us to find our help in him. We who are beset with weakness, we have one who is strong in our place and who knows our weakness. And he beckons us to not just be better or be stronger, but rather to come to him, that he might strengthen us to do what we cannot do on our own and to trust in his righteousness applied into our lives. He doesn't tell us to to be righteous so that we can uh, win our approval to him. No, no, no. No, no. He, He saves us and gives us his righteousness. And then he then empowers us to do what we cannot do on our own. I mean, 
the, the beauty of that, the, the beauty of that is astounding, isn't it? Have you ever thought about that? That, that Jesus welcomes us gladly when we admit our total dependence on him and, and that this is a growing mark of godliness? Or, or as we said on Sunday, weakness is the way, right? Because in our weakness, we depend upon his strength. And throughout our lives, we have come to see and will continue to see how dependent we are upon Jesus for every good thing. And we see how dependent we are upon one another as his people, right? Because I need you to remind me of the good things of the Lord, and you need me to remind you of this as well. Or as the song that we all learned growing up so eloquently puns it, lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on for. It won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to lean on. So lean on me. And then it keeps going, right? Uh, and, and as Christians, I, lean on me. And, and I will lean on you. And, and as Christians, we have someone that we can together lean on. And, and we can, it's Jesus. Uh, and then we can lean upon one another, Right? And, and, and by his spirit, he will empower us to do this. So, so humility is the air that we breathe as Christians. Weakness is the way. It's not by strength, right? So, so brothers and sisters, don't think that you need to be strong. That's not a mark of Christian maturity. No, rather, admit your weakness and come in to receive mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. So the first two works that we are reminded of, firstly, the incarnation, and secondly, the perfect obedience of Christ. And thirdly, we're going to spend some time thinking upon the substitutionary death of Christ. And this is the crux of the work that Jesus has accomplished for us. And it's really the aim of the other two, right? There's the incarnation, where Jesus lays humanity alongside of his divinity and steps into time, right? He comes then to live a perfect life of obedience, and yet all of that would be fruitless apart from this third work, laying down his life in our place, suffering under the righteous wrath of God the Father that we deserve and have earned. And here in our discussion, we tread on especially holy ground in considering the works of Jesus, right? a ground that ought to continually fill us with awe and wonder and praise as Jesus explains throughout the Gospels that he would be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? As he would lay down his own life to win the salvation of his people, so, so while we talked about Christ's act of obedience a few moments ago in theological circles, we, we have another term to talk about, about the cross, and it's Jesus's passive obedience. Now, I don't want you to understand the word passive. All right, Christians have not used this term to mean that Jesus is just kind of passive when it came to dying on the cross. Don't, don't mistake this for passivity. Rather, the word passive is defined as follows, accepting or allowing what happens. And this is what we see. So, so Jesus uh, accepts and allows what God the Father has ordained and planned. Right? Nobody took Jesus' life from him. Rather, he laid it down of his own accord to fulfill the purposes and plans of God the Father. So when Christians speak about Jesus' passive obedience, it refers to how Jesus lovingly followed the Father's plan and purposes by laying down his own life, submitting to the penalty of death and the cup of the wrath of God the Father that our sins deserved. And that is the message of the cross. This is what every single one of the gospel writers were writing to explain and how the entire Bible has been working together up until this exact moment where Jesus stands 
as our substitute, facing the penalty for our sins so that we might have atonement. Or as the million-dollar theological term for this is this, it's the penal substitutionary atonement. So let's explain that kind of word by word because it's, it's really the crux of what all Christians believe and hold dear. It's our hope in life and in death. And so that first word, penal, which is a word referring to the law code, like the penalty, right? So, so we are those who are guilty of breaking God's commands. And so what we deserve for our rebellion against the high king of heaven is his wrath, his just judgment to be poured out upon us, right? We are guilty sinners. This is all that we've earned before him. And no amount of community service or good works can eliminate the necessity of us facing judgment for what we have done in opposition to him, right? how we have sinned against God and broken his laws. Right? So the same way that a murderer is not let off the hook because their great community service or religious deeds, no way, man, that guy needs, he killed people. Right? So in the same way, we cannot be let off before God for our treason against him by our good deeds. It makes no sense. Right? Thus, in regards to the law of God, the penalty that we deserve is to spend eternity future suffering under the righteous wrath of God. Thus, in Jesus' death, what he does is he takes upon himself that penalty for us. And this was prophesied long ago, uh, as Isaiah 53, 5 explains, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And John records Jesus' words for us in John 3, that Jesus must be lifted up. And as he is lifted up, he would draw all men to himself, fulfilling the words in Isaiah about the righteous branch of the Lord, that idyllic king of Israel in Isaiah 10. That Peter writes about this as well in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That many other ways, many other times, we see this just constantly reiterated. right? Or as we put it a couple of weeks ago in our sermon, Jesus took the rod of God's judgment in our place. We deserve that rod by our own actions for thinking God as cruel and rebelling against him, but Jesus takes the hit for us. And so we get to receive mercy and pardon. So, so Jesus comes to stand guilty for our law-breaking, the penalty of our sin, which brings us to the second word, uh, substitutionary. And this refers to the fact that Jesus died as our substitute, him in our place. Him taking the death that we rightfully deserve. Him taking an eternity of hell that we deserve to pay and paying our debt in full as our substitute. We remember that the idea of substitution has been built into Israel's history since the beginning. Right from the garden where the animal died instead of Adam and Eve and they're covered in that animal's skin right? Uh, to, the, to the Passover lamb that died in the place of the oldest son in the family, as they are in Egypt, to the ceremonial laws given by God to his people. So it's no surprise when we read of John the Baptist looking at Jesus and pointing his finger and said, look, the lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> or, or when we read of Paul calling Jesus the Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5, or when we read in Isaiah 53, 12, uh, explains that the suffering servant would come and, and that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And, and it's no wonder that 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, God the Father, made him, Christ Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. And that's important, that he knew no sin, but he was made 
to be sick. So that in him, so he bears the, the full weight of all of our sin as our substitute. So that, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Which then brings us to our last word, atonement. The word atonement is a word that refers to the full payment being paid in order to restore us into a right relationship with God. Thus, if we are to have any assurance that Jesus has paid our debt in full, the doctrine of atonement is incredibly helpful. See, Jesus didn't pay 99% of our debt and then tell us to pay the last 1% by our good works. No, no, no. He, he paid for it in full, taking upon himself the full cup of the wrath of the Father reserved for us so that we might be declared righteous before him by faith and through grace. And the consensus of the Bible's teaching is that we are a guilty people deserving nothing but the punishment of God. But Jesus has come to stand condemned in our place, to face the penalty of the law as our substitute so that we can be forgiven and adopted into the family of God, restored in a right relationship with God by grace and through faith. Believing that Jesus lived the life we ought to have lived and died the death we ought to have died, facing all of the righteous wrath of God the Father that was reserved for us, so that no more judgment awaits us, no more wrath awaits us. The debt has been paid in full. The bill has been paid, thus producing in the heart of the Christian great thanks and wonder and delight, so that, as the hymn so powerfully puts it, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And now, lastly, in this episode, I want us to consider what is the result of this atonement? Or another way of asking this is, what did this penal substitutionary death, what did it accomplish for us as God's people? And we'll mention three of these words that are helpful for us to know as a means of comforting us and so that we know the works of Christ so we can worship him better for it. Firstly, Jesus' death accomplished, uh, accomplished the propitiation of God's wrath. I know you can check the show notes to see how this word is spelled. Uh, propitiation, meaning that God's righteous anger against sin has been resolved and paid for as it has been absorbed by Christ's sacrifice. Romans 3, 23 to 25 explains this. It says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And 1 John 4, 10 says, And this is love. This is, and this is love. Not that we've loved God. Nope. That's not love. No, so, so what is love? Not, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation, meaning that the righteous anger uh, against sin from a holy and righteous God has been resolved and paid for as it's been absorbed by Christ's sacrifice. That's propitiation. Now, secondly, Jesus' death has accomplished expiation. And this might be also a new word for you. Uh, from looking at the word we, we can see in the show notes that expiation starts with the prefix ex, meaning out of or from. So expiation, as R.C. Sproul explains, has to do with removing something or taking something away. So in biblical terms, it has to do with taking away 
guilt, the guilt that we have because of our sin, through the payment of a penalty or the offering of atonement. R.C. Sproul goes on to say, Expiation is the act that results in the change of God's disposition towards us. It's what Jesus did on the cross, and the result of Jesus' work of expiation is propitiation. Now you're like, I don't know what you just said. A bunch of big, big words. Here's the idea. The idea of this word expiation is that the righteous wrath of God against uh, us for our many sins has been removed. It's been expiated. It's been taken away. Specifically, how? Through the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. As he took upon himself all of the judgment that we deserve. So because of the cross, God's righteous wrath against our sin is turned away. It's sent away. So, so expiation, therefore, is a great comfort to you. Even if, it, even if you don't know the word and don't know how to spell it, it's, it's a great comfort to you because it reminds us of how Jesus' death fully covers and takes away all of the guilt of our sin. And it's something that a lot of us deal with a lot. We, we have guilt of, of sin in our past. Even when we've confessed it before God, we still kind of walk around with this guilt of, of, of sins from our past. And it comes from not understanding this properly. See, see, because when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? The, all, the guilt of the sin is, is expiated. It was nailed to the cross of Christ. So all of your sins, past, present, future, all of them were nailed to the cross of Christ. So, brother and sister, that brings you great comfort because it assures you that no sin can now separate you from the love of God through Christ Jesus. You have been bought by God. Jesus has won your salvation. You now, by faith in him, you are his. Your sins have been covered by his blood. The payment has been made. So when we sin, we approach the throne of God with confidence that we will be accepted and pardoned as we come confessing and repenting these sins and professing the righteousness of Christ in our place, which means you don't have to try to do enough good works to expiate your own sins because you can't. You can't do enough good things to remove or take away guilt. You can't. But that's what Jesus has come to accomplish on the cross. Brother and sister, that is a great comfort. So, so trust in that Jesus has come to take that away from you and to propitiate God's wrath and anger towards you. So when you confess your sin, you repent of those sins, you profess the righteousness of Jesus in your place, you, you remember the gospel. As you do that, you are relishing the fact that God has taken away your sin, that it's been paid for. Thus, we don't need to allow these things from our past to walk around with us having free rent in our minds. We can stop, thank God that we have received forgiveness for that. Thank God that the judgment that we rightfully do deserve for that has been paid by Jesus, which in turn can make us turn and worship Jesus, thanking him for his great work. And so anytime that you're tempted from sins in your past, remember, use that as an opportunity to stop and to remember, that's right, I, I do deserve God's judgment because of that. But I know that Jesus died in the, on the cross in my place to take away, to expiate, to make 
the, the judgment of that go away as he died as a substitute, as my propitiation, taking all of the wrath of God the Father for that sin. So God, thank you that I now am, am forgiven for that, not because I, I've done any great thing, but I'm trusting in the finished work of Jesus in my place, that he has taken all the punishment for that. Now, does that mean you won't ever walk around with consequences because of your sin? No. But it does mean that all of the guilt of that can be can be washed away as we remember the gospel. So use that as an opportunity to stop and to remember the gospel. This is what I meant when I said that theology is deeply practical. It's deeply practical to know about expiation, incredibly practical in your life. Right? So, so propitiation, therefore, and expiation, both incredibly practical doctrines. And lastly, we remember that Jesus's death also brought about purification, meaning that, that we have been cleansed. Brother and sister, you've been cleansed, washed clean and set apart as acceptable to God now by faith in the finished work of Jesus alone. Therefore, you no longer stand before God in the nakedness of your shame. Rather, now you stand before God covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Therefore, when God now looks at you, he sees you through the lens of Jesus. This is, I I like to explain it kind of like this, like I need glasses because I can't see properly. And so I use contacts sometimes, I use glasses other times. And when I look through the lens of that, I see things perfectly. And so in understanding Jesus's work, God the Father now looks at us through the lens, like the glasses lens or the contact lens. So he looks at us through the lens of Christ and as he sees us, he now sees us as perfect. Not because we are, but because Christ is perfect in our place. And Christ's righteousness is therefore applied into our lives. Brother and sister, you, by faith in Jesus alone, you've been covered in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. So positionally, before God, you are those who have been washed clean. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. 1 John 1, 7 says, The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Not some sins, but all sin. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 9, verse 14, says, The blood of Christ purifies our conscience so that we can now serve the living God. Thus, Thus, now, right, though we are beset with weakness, right, though we sin every day, we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus applied into our bankrupt accounts so that we are positionally children of God who are covered in the righteousness of Jesus, Some Christian theologians, they refer to this wonderful news as remembering our positional sanctification, that we are now in a position before God where we have been sanctified, and then throughout our lives, we grow in sanctification, right? That that though we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, it's not a faith that remains alone. Rather, we grow into full maturity, to godly womanhood, to godly manhood as God's word continues to profit us and the end result is good works, right? So in in considering these things, we see how Christ's perfect life and his work on the cross, how it changes everything for us as Christians and it comforts us as Christians, so, so it's worthwhile then to, to pause and praise the God that created us, to, to praise God that, that 
Christ's work was totally effective in our lives, that God the Spirit gave us the faith to believe the gospel and that we were born again as a result of the Spirit's work in us, as a result of hearing this good news. Or as the verse explains, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we need only to look at our own lives to see the truthfulness of that phrase. Right? This is exactly what God did in my life. And if you're a Christian, this is what God did in your life. And all this happened as a result of the finished work of Jesus. And to him alone belongs all the praise for saving us. Through his incarnation, through his perfect life, and through his substitutionary death. It is by Jesus's strong arm that we have been saved. Not by our works, but by the finished work of Christ in our place. So thanks for tuning into this episode of Basecamp. We want to thank all the wonderful folks at Capitol Hill Baptist Church for some of the outline of today's episode and helping us equip our church to continue to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We'll see you next time.